This morning we continue our study of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the first eight chapters. Finally, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you learn from us how you ought to live and please God, and as in fact you are doing, that you should do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you knows how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one wrongs or exploits a brother or sister in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just, we have, just as we have already told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God did not call us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever rejects this, rejects not human authority, but God, who also gives us his Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. We've entitled this sort of series, the look at uh, these two letters, the already and the not yet, because it's a term that describes how we live in light of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus Christ and the life that we're living in between. And for the Apostle Paul, these, these, uh, the life is connected to eschatology, eschatology being the study of, of you know, the end things. And so his Christology, if you will, his study of Christ and his teachings and what he had done and the encounter that he had with the resurrected Jesus, it influences everything that Paul says to the church because he's saying we're not just following cold precepts here. There's actually a trajectory that life is headed and we want to live in, in a congruence with this, this inseparable uh, trajectory that gives meaning to everything that he is teaching and that he is saying. He uses the phrase in, the, in uh, the first verse, to walk and to please God, this image of walking and journeying and embodying things. And he says in verse 2 that he was given instructions through Jesus. And remember that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was seen by hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses, that the Christian faith was not based on missing body theory. But Jesus actually spent 40 days with the apostles, and he spent 40 days in which time hundreds upon hundreds of people saw him. So the teaching that Paul's giving to the church here isn't just out of left field where he's like, hey, I've just got some ideas on sexual ethics. I'd just like to quick just drop into the chat. Uh, this is coming from a place of, okay, hold on. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, then that reorganizes the way that we understand humanity and the trajectory of where we're actually headed. If in the end all there is is death, darkness, and non-existence, then all of our ethics are ultimately up for grabs. Dr. Arthur Leff was one of the professors of law at NYU, and he used to say uh, in one of, or used to say, he wrote in a paper that he, uh, that he had uh, published about uh, sort of divine authority, divine standards. He said, you know, if there is no God, then which one of us can climb up into his throne and declare what is truth? If there is no divine standard for truth, are we not just dealing with preference? If there is no divine standard for truth, then... On what basis can we get in a plane and fly to another region of the world and point our finger at a particular culture doing a particular thing and say, you're getting that wrong? We can make arguments that perhaps our worldview helps the flourishing of humanity in the city in one way and perhaps it's more beneficial, loving and kind and generous. Those arguments can be made. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're true for all people in all cultures throughout all of world history. 
And ultimately, in the end, if humanity is moving towards a place of non-existence and then the sun goes supernova and there's no trace in the cosmos that we ever existed, then ultimately none of these things have an ultimate... We're dealing with preference. It's provocative to think about that. And so Paul, when he's talking to the church, and for us as Christians, thinking about sexuality, on what basis do we frame any of this? So for Paul, it's, he's framing it according to God's wisdom. In the Old Testament, we have a book called Proverbs, and it is wisdom literature. And you're supposed to meditate on it and chew on it and keep meditating on it. And one of the themes that continually comes up in Proverbs is the theme of being a fool. And to be a fool does not mean that you're unintelligent. You can be highly intelligent, highly educated. You can be the smartest person in every room that you walk into. And by God's definition, be a fool. Because the fool does not mean a lack of intellect. It means you are out of sync with God's reality. There is a reality and a trajectory for humanity. And to the degree that we live out of sync with that, we are foolish. And our souls are on a trajectory of not flourishing. Because there is a divine creator who desperately loves his creation, moved heaven and earth through the cross of Jesus Christ to reunite us with him. These are all the things in the background behind why Paul writes what he writes to the church. So this morning we're going to look at um, the wisdom of God's word on matters of sexuality that, where he gives guidance for his people in our practice, our, our posture, and our purpose in this, uh, this text here. And this is coming out of a sense of cause and effect. If we love Jesus and are united to him and are indwelt by his spirit, then that therefore has an effect. So all of the language in the New Testament is on that basis of true faith or cause and effect. So when Jesus says things like in the gospel, in, in John's gospel, when he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, to the modern ear, that is alien and ridiculous because love and obeying commands seems like just a complete dichotomy. But for Jesus to say, if you love me, you'll obey my commands, it's not a divine guilt trip. It's a cause and effect statement. He's saying, if you love me, then the commands of my word are going, you're going to ingest those, internalize them, and begin to live them out. It's the effect of being indwelt by the power of the Spirit. You're going to want it. And those of us who are not united to Christ, don't place our faith in Christ, don't love God or have any use for God, then of course we're not going to because we've, there's no internal uh, combustion engine that's sort of moving us you know, towards desiring the wisdom and the ways of God. So we're going to look at, uh, firstly, the practice, which is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, and then we'll touch on the per- uh, um, our posture and uh, the purpose. And you'll notice that I've put them on this, the screen here, so you have it, that the practice of sexuality, it pertains to those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, have confessed him as Savior and Lord, and desire to walk in his ways. Now we have to have a posture towards those who've, who've not made that profession, and uh, don't share our ethics or our worldview uh, in any way. And then lastly, the purpose uh, for, uh, for walking it out. So in terms of our practice, you continually come to the Bible and the way the Bible describes love and talks about love, talks about God's love, talks about love within marriage in the context of what we're going to unpack here, what Paul is talking about, sexual, uh, our sexual practices as it relates to love. And it could be summed up in a phrase that Dr. Tim Keller put in a book on marriage by saying, Biblical love always desires permanence. And so it is in this framework of permanence that we find the ultimate romantic of God. 
the, ulti- the ultimate romance of God and his people, the ultimate love, that desire for permanence, despite failure, despite misery, despite rejection, despite uh, unfaithfulness by his people, that desire for permanence. In verse 3 says that this is the will of God, that you would be sanctified in this way. And, and the will of God, when we think of the will of God, it's important for us to recognize the framework. It's about who I'm becoming. As moderns approaching the Bible, we hear the term will of God and we want to think about what it is that I'm doing. What's God's will for this next season of my life? God cares immensely about every season of our life. But the will of God is not so much a directive that you're given. It's something you're either standing in or you're not. And to stand in the will of God is to be indwelt by his spirit, to be his child, and then therefore to be on a path of renewal as a result of the spirit's indwelling. That's the will of God. He says, this is the will of God, that you'd be sanctified. In the Greek, he talks about holiness being hagios in the Greek, which is like this trajectory of this process of advancing in, in, in holiness and in purity, pro- progressive transformation. And, and, it, and uh, when I hear those words, for some of you, it's like, oh, you should have given me a trigger warning because that makes me think of angry religious people who talk about holiness and these sorts of things. How did the, how did the holiness of Jesus Christ, the most holy, manifest? Look at the life of Jesus. It looked like tremendous grace and generosity and speaking, uh, speaking harsh words to the religious leaders who misrepresented the heart of God. It looked like having an unapologetic standard for uh, the wise ways of God and therefore the wisdom of God being living into that holiness. He lived a perfect obedience to his father. But look at, look at his posture towards those who didn't share any of these views. This constant, this constant love and, and, and draw and, and grace uh, that we see in him. And so there's this advancing in holiness that Paul wants to see in the church. He wants them to begin to embrace things and live into family resemblance as it relates to their sexuality. When we uh, profess that God's made us in his image, the image doesn't just refer to our soul. It refers to this this mysterious lodging of soul and body, that the physical matters. Uh, in our particular location uh, here in, as moderns in the West, uh, there's increasing conversation about separating actually the significance of, of my, my personality, my inner self, my soul, and the physicality of my body. But, but for the Christian, we understand, no, actually, those things are, the, the body and the soul, there, there's actually, they're inseparable. That both matter. That both declare that I'm made in God's image in some way. They're reflecting that, that, that the physical matters. And the significance of this is that there's this unity of mind and soul and body. But even though day to day right now we all need renewal. Because we are, all have wayward desires or we have conflicts within ourselves in various ways. Whether it's uh, sexual desires that are outside the wise guidance of God's word. Whether it's even conflicts Within our, with our, within our own selves, between who we feel as a person, the physical body that we're in, all of these sorts of things. But for the Christian, we realize that in the end, is not death and nothingness, but it is the renewal of the material world, the renewal of the physical body that matters, and therefore the healing of all of the contradictions that are even within the self and the body. Come into this glorious harmony, this glorious renewal, this glorious peace, as Christ renews all things. So for Paul, he wants, us to, to, he, he wants the church to not just mirror the ancient culture of Thessalonica in the ways that they were relating to their bodies and to sex. 
And so this image of God manifests itself in, as Jesus said in Matthew 19, God creating us male and female, and then for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave only to his wife and become one flesh. And all of that for the Christian speaks to a greater image of, of this diversity that comes into unity. The, the diversity of a God and his people, two things that are not like each other, of Christ and his church, two things that are not like each other that come into unity and glorious love. And then the marriage of the husband and the wife being a picture and an image, and even our sexuality reflecting the greater image of where humanity is headed. This great diversity coming together in unity. So Paul's bringing all of this to, into ancient Thessalonica where none of, none of these sexual uh, ideas are found in the culture. It's, it's not unlike today, only it's uh, actually... Uh, uh, f- far, far more uh, liberal than, it, than things are today in southern Ontario and ancient Thessalonica. But Paul's bringing this all in because the audience, of course, is the people of God. How do we live indwelt by the Spirit? How do we live those who trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because, like I said, if Christ did not raise from the dead, then your sexual ethics are, they, may, they, they can really, we can just construct them. But Paul's saying, no, actually, there's a reality to where life is headed, and therefore, how do we come into congruence with uh, this? In 130 AD, there was a letter that was written to um, a Diognetus, and scholarship isn't sure who that actually was, if it was a people group, but it's a letter that was written like a Christian apologetic, contains a lot of the writings of Justin the philosopher, uh, who was a Christian writer, follower of Christ, and here's what he wrote about Christians in 130 AD. He said, Christians are indistinguishable from others by nationality or language or customs. With regards to dress and food and manner of life, in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet, there's something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they're only passing through. The country can be their homeland, but for their homeland, wherever it may be, it's foreign. And like everybody else, they marry and they have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in the flesh, but they're not governed by the flesh. The way that the Christians related to sex in ancient Thessalonica was laughable. The Greco-Roman world laughed at the way that they related to sex and to wealth. Because they would, in a stratified Roman culture, you'd cling to your wealth and give away your sex. And here's the Christians giving away their wealth and clinging, <laughs> clinging to their, to clinging to their sex, sexual partners. And it was the exact opposite. And of course, the way that the Greco-Romans related to wealth and sex destroyed and eroded that, um, the social fabric of ancient Rome. In many ways, it wasn't helpful in even practical, tangible ways that related to things. So the Christians' way of living was laughable. But I think a good question for us to ask today would be... Uh, if we are uh, pressured by the constant conversation, obsession of sexuality by our culture, which is always in flux and can always change, and there's no reason to believe that the things that we hold as true today will be held by future generations 100, 200, 500 years from now. We have no basis to believe that a generation wouldn't rise up and look at the beliefs and the practices uh, of our city at this time and location and continue those things. Things are constantly evolving. And so... We look at this and we recognize that if we just sort of adopt the fluid conversation around sexuality, it is then to deny the trajectory and ultimately the significance of the, 
of the resurrection, which is what Paul is using. So in verse 4, he uses this phrase, control your own body. He says, control your own body uh, in holiness and in sanctification. You could also translate it, control your own vessel. You could also translate it, some of your Bibles say, uh, take a wife, which is strange. And as a modern reader, you'd think, oh my goodness, this is absolutely the opposite of empowering to women. But in fact, when we look at what's going on in ancient Thessalonica and what Paul is saying, he's actually uh, empowering women. He says, control, control your body, control your sexuality. The way that you, should, that you take a wife should not be in, in lust. And he uses uh, the phrase uh, in the Greek, pornea, which is where we get our English word pornography from, which basically means to sell off. In the original Greek, it's to sell off or to surrender, uh, to give yourself over to sexual promiscuity. And so what he's getting at here is he's saying everybody is giving, up, giving themselves or taking spouses or relating to sexuality like uh, people are commodities and they're using people. And when you come into the church, we're drawing a line in the sand and it's not going to be that way. He goes on to say that God is an avenger. He says don't exploit people. Don't exploit them sexually. It was common in Thessalonica that everybody was being exploited sexually. Um, and so Paul's drawing a line in the sand and saying, there, when you come into the church, our whole way of relating to this has to be uh, completely different. He goes on in verse 6 to say, God is the avenger. He's the champion of those who are exploited sexually. God is the one that's going to bring ultimate divine judgment. For every person who has ever been abused or hurt or abandoned or been given reason to uh, uh, just have a deep sense of sorrow related to anything sexually, the words that God is the avenger are wonderful words. As moderns, we don't like the language of God being a God of judgment and God being a God of avenger, and yet we're obsessed with judgment. It's just that it's our judgment. We don't hate the idea of judgment. We just hate the idea that we're not the judge. We love judging. We're obsessed with judgment. But it's our own subjective judgment. And so God comes and he says... Uh, to the church, we've got to relate in a completely different way. In Thessalonica and in ancient Rome in general, most of the um, men of, who had privilege and needs had multiple sexual partners. Your wife, your mistress, and your prostitute. And when you study ancient Roman antiquity, you'll find those three f- phrases being used over and over and over. The wife, the mistress, and the prostitute. Roman culture was stratified. You were all at socioeconomic levels. So your wife didn't need to be somebody that you loved. She needed to be somebody who had the wealth and social status to keep you on the same level. Or maybe you could level up. But you didn't need to love her. You might have sex with her, but you didn't need to love her. Your mistress didn't, had nothing to do with your social status. Your, your mistress had nothing to do with where you stood uh, in relation to your reputation in the city. So your mistress could be your friend and your mistress could be... Uh, uh, your lover sexually and there could be a sort of a friends with benefits scenario there but you really weren't committed to the mistress either and then you could the third relationship was the prostitute the, the ultimate degrading of the woman the sex toy and so in all of these scenarios the women aren't being cared for in all of these scenarios nobody's committed to them and in all of these scenarios it's terrible for them and Paul is drawing a line in the sand and he's saying when you come into the church there's no pornea there's no just selling off your sexuality. There's no relating to this like it's, like it's cavalier. This is the way in which in the church that we've got to relate to our sexuality. It's got a context. And the context is a lifelong commitment, covenant promise. Before you give your body, you give your life. 
You don't give yourself sexually unless you're giving yourself economically and legally and emotionally in every single conceivable way. And once you've committed to give all of who you are to this person in a promise where you stand in front of their family and their friends and you publicly make a commitment and you say, you all heard me say it. This is what I'm committing to. And you raise the bar as high as you could possibly raise it on your commitment. Once you've done whole life commitment, then you, give your, then you do body commitment. And the reason why Paul framing it like this, which of course was absurd to that culture and absurd in this culture, is because he's saying that is a picture of the way that our God loves us. And this is ultimately where history is headed. That after we are all dead and there's a resurrection from the grave, we're not just floating around as ethereal parts of the universe. We're not a part of the Brahmin. It's, it's not that there's no you, no me, just us. It's not spirit, spiritual dust. It's why, the, it's why the philosophers in Athens were captivated by the story of the resurrection. Some of the people in Athens said, you guys are drunk. And some of them said, we want to hear you, we want to hear you again on this matter. Because you're talking about a, a physical renewal of humanity and we're interested in that. So because Paul understands that eschatology, it's now coming into his Christology, right? It's his study of, of Jesus and the life that he lived and the purity and the holiness and the wonder. And for all of the single people here, seeing that Jesus' humanity perfected is a single man. That he doesn't incarnate and come to earth and have a wife and have children and say, behold, the picture of fulfillment. From the jump, people have been using sex as the pathway to freedom and liberation and self-understanding means of happiness and joy and escalating sex and, 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 and super overemphasizing it to be the, the savior that it absolutely cannot be. And so there is just catastrophic disenchant, disenchantment around sexuality because it is, it is the God that cannot deliver. It is the impotent God. And so Paul wants the church in Thessalonica to come in congruence with the, the wisdom of God's ways as it relates to the practice of sexuality and marriage. And he says in verse 5, don't be like those who don't know God. And so for those of you who are here this morning, you're like, I was exploring Christian faith, I'm not a Christian, I'm wondering, and they're like, wow, what a Sunday to show up. Like you're getting such a great inside scoop that when Paul says, don't act like the ones who don't know God, he's not saying that with his nose in the air, like, <laughs> we're so much better. Being so much better is not a thing that Jesus did. Right? Like, Self-righteousness is not the mark of holiness. Someone who is self-righteous is the opposite of holy. Look at what Jesus was doing to people who did not know God. He was having lunch with them. He was hanging out with them. He was making deep friendships with them. Jesus spent so much time with people that didn't know God. And he loved people so much who didn't know God that the religious leaders were like, yo, Jesus is up to what the rest of them are up to. This dude is sleeping with prostitutes. He's a drunkard because that's what they're all doing. So that must be what Jesus is doing. He's spending that much time with them. So when Paul says, don't act like the ones that don't know God, it's, it's not a shot across the bow. He's just saying we're, we're from two different universes. We're speaking two different languages. I'm jumping ahead, but like our posture towards the people who don't know God needs to be loving and kind and dignity. Because they don't know God. This church, if you remember from week one, it's three weeks old. Paul was in Thessalonica for three weeks, and then he gets kicked out of the city and he's running for his life. <laughs> What was he doing for three weeks? He was loving people. He was sharing his life with people. He was, he was preaching the gospel to people. He was talking about the love of Christ. When you read through the New Testament sermons, and I'm always reading through them because I'd like to be in line with those guys, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ dominates preaching. Because that's the context for any, any of our ethics having any significance. They're not, nobody's in the street trying to transform the sexual ethics of Thessalonica. That's not what they were doing. We're going after the, like the heart and the soul of people. Of like trying to bring people into a sense of true soul flourishing by knowing their creator and reuniting that, and reuniting that, that disconnect. And so he says, don't be like them, because the way that they're taking their wives is they're using, they're using them. The way they're taking their sexual partners is they're using them. It's lustful. I need this socioeconomic status. i got to marry that person. Check. If you go into marriage, like this person completes me, this person fulfills me. This, if you are obsessing over marriage as a single person, then marriage is going to ricochet back in your face and be a disaster. Because there's no way anybody who's been married for longer than, than one month knows that sex is not, is not the God that heals the soul. And there's so much disenchantment around that. Um, that it's just, it's catastrophic. There's a woman named Louise Perry. She's not a Christian. She's a Brit- British journalist. She wrote a provocative book, book called A Case Against the Sexual Revolution, where she's arguing as a woman. She's saying, we're being, she's basically saying the emperor has no clothes. We're being fed this idea constantly that um, to live a vibrant life as a single person who's sexually fulfilled is like the pathway to joy. And she's saying, what about those of us who are not living these vibrant sexual lives? The disenchantment is catastrophic. She says in her book, the modern idea that sex is nothing more than a leisure activity invested with meaning only if the participants choose to give it meaning. The proponents, the proponents of this idea argue that sex has no intrinsic specialness that it's not innately different from any other sort of social interaction, and that it can therefore become modified without any trouble. But sexual disenchantment is a natural consequence of liberally privileging the freedom over all other values. Because if you want to be utterly free, you have to take aim at any kind of social restrictions that limit you, particularly the belief that sex has some unique and tangible value. She goes on later in her book to say, sex must be taken seriously. Consent is not enough. Loveless sex is not empowering. Marriage is good. (laughs) This woman is not a believer, but she's just looking at this and going, I don't know that this is working out for our souls the way that we're being told that it is. And so Paul comes to the church and says, do not relate to marriage that way. Do not relate to sex that way. If you're not giving whole life commitment, do not give whole body commitment. And so for, this, for those who are single, don't fall prey to the overemphasis of believing that true happiness and joy and fulfillment means having a romantic partner, means having a vibrant sex life. If you're a single person and you believe in Jesus Christ and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, you can live a fulfilled life as a single person precisely because the savior of your soul is not being sexually vibrant. That idea is not like modern and progressive. It's so old. And it's never, ever worked. Because the soul is craving something deeper. Sex cannot be the path to uh, the full uh, joy, fulfillment, and liberation that even in ancient Thessalonica they were being fed that it was. It was a disaster. And so let's move on very quickly to speak about our posture. Our posture towards those who disagree with 100% of what I just said. And maybe you're here today and you're thinking, that's me. Um, Yeah, 
we want to relate to you with uh, uh, love and kindness and dignity because we understand that we're, we're speaking two different languages here. We have two different worldviews. We believe the world is headed in two different directions. Um, like, I don't, I don't mean to be uh, curt, but it's, it's, it seems that a lot of the modern conversations around sexuality would lead a person to believe that, like, your, your body is a, a playground and you could exercise sexuality in like it's a playground. But for a Christian, the body is a temple. So those are two very different like paradigms for your body. And then where we believe that life, as I've already said to you, where we believe it's headed, those are two different, very different paradigms. And so our, we need to relate to those who disagree with everything we've said uh, with, with love and with humility. And that's because, of course, these worldviews are on a collision course you know, and I'll explain it perhaps this way in the way that we engage in these conversations because some of you might be thinking, well, good, that means I'll just keep my mouth shut and I'll never talk about sexuality to make sure that I'm never canceled in any context anywhere. I'll just keep my mouth closed. Thank you for that sermon. It just means I'll say nothing. No, that's attractive, but there are ways that we can lovingly and, and respectfully have these conversations. It's just we need to pick our spots. We need to be wise about when we would do it and when we wouldn't do it, reading the room and all the sorts of things, wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So there are opportunities to have these, to have conversations that could be helpful and meaningful if we have family and friends or co-workers in our lives who we can see the disenchantment of, of their approach to sexuality is actually hurting them. And so it would be very caring and loving to have conversations when appropriate um, to do that. But in the same way that you would go to one culture and they would say, this is a delicacy. You've got to try it. It's a delicacy. But this person from the other culture says, gross, not interested. That's what it's like having conversations around rivaling sexual ethics today. We love the idea that we could sit down and have educated and uh, civil discourse across the table, that you can bring any worldview that you like to the conversation, and there's just going to be civil discourse back and forth, and we'll walk away and we'll say, we don't agree with each other, but that's okay. And we, the polarization of the moment we live in makes that incredibly difficult, but we can engage with love and wisdom. And there will be times where you won't engage, and that will be wise. But then there's others of you who are in here, you're thoroughly disappointed with this sermon. You don't like it at all, because you are addicted to controversy. And you love argument. You get a high off of argument, and you're like, no, preacher. You need to tell the church that if we would just be a little bit bolder, and trust me, I'm trying. That glass is like two millimeters thick, and the staff from the city can hear every word that I say. So I get it. You're like, no, if the church would just be bolder and would rise up and, and, and uh, you know, preach the truth of the scriptures, then we can change the city. And I just need you to know that if you believe that, you're utterly naive. Because the apostles did not do that. So I don't know why you think me or you are somehow more anointed and gifted than them. They did not stand and point their finger at Rome or Thessalonica and say, you're getting your sexual ethics wrong. They loved people. They preached Jesus. And as people were indwelt by the power of the Spirit and baptized and came to the Lord's table, over weeks and months and years, their appetites changed. There is no amount of standing up with a sexual menu and pointing it at the culture and saying, would you like to order off of this? And expecting them to want any of it is lunacy. It's not... <laughs> Christian maturity is not... Just simply saying, well, I guess I'll order off this new menu now and expect my unsaved neighbors to order off it. It's 
the transformation of the appetites, of the taste buds. It's the work of the Spirit. It's real transformation. So if you're not interested in loving your neighbor enough to preach Christ and get to the really difficult stuff of who Jesus was, of like the really intimidating conversation of why do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If we're not going to have that conversation, then there's no point in saying, well, I'm not going to have the the real conversation that brings transformation. I'm just going to have this conversation around sexual ethics because if you're honest with yourself, you'd just be more comfortable if everybody around you related to sexuality the way you relate to it. So we have to go further and love people. Love people enough to show them Jesus. This is what the apostles did. This is why Christianity exploded through Rome. It's because they came into the church and what they experienced was the love and the grace and the wonder of God. And it was transformative in every way. The last thing that I want to say about that is that the transformation was not top-down government legislation. It was inside-out. And so my job at this time and location in history is to preach to people who live in a, at a time where nothing may get legislated for the rest of your natural lifetime that is ever congruent with your faith. Now, how will you, will you and I live in that context? And the answer is, with love and grace and mercy and wisdom, because transformation is not top down, it's inside out. The purpose for sex from this divine illustration that I've been talking about today, this eternal perspective, it transcends all the subjective ideas from our historical and cultural location because we are living in the already and not yet. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is like a lightning flash and his return is like a thunderclap. How much time do we have in between the lightning flash and the thunderclap? I don't know. I can't answer that. That's above my pay grade. The point is, because those things are a reality, because they are inseparable and connected and happening, you and I desire to live in congruence between here and between now, not because we're following cold precepts about sexuality, but because we're following a king, because we love a king. The one who points us to a love that is not a subjective idea that can be fluid and changed, but a love that is actually eternal and unchanging. One that, one that we will come into uh, in fullness and enjoy forever. May we live to the glory of the one who has saved us in grace. Let's pray.